Hello and welcome to this At Anyway podcast. I'm Marindam Sandilia, uh, part of JP Morgan's FX strategy team, and we are here to discuss this week in currencies. So it's been an eventful week in markets. Uh, risky assets have rallied following the July FOMC meeting, and the dollar has weakened by more than 1% from pre-FOMC levels. Investors are trying to figure out if uh, Chair Powell has now uh, opened the door ever so slightly towards an incrementally dovish shift in the Fed's reaction function by uh, acknowledging the ongoing weakness in growth and uh, abandoning forward guidance, uh, unlike in the last two meetings. So clearly this has led to large moves in US rates. Uh, Five-year yields, for example, are almost 20 basis points lower from their pre-Fed levels and uh, a whopping 50 basis points from just last week's intra-week highs, which obviously has repercussions for rate-sensitive currencies like the yen. Uh, But FX is hardly ever a single factor story around the Fed and US rates. Uh, And news out of Europe this week is hardly rosy with business surveys uh, falling into recessionary territory and gas prices skyrocketing once again. So plenty to unpack here. And uh, I have with me two of my colleagues from the FX team to help me do just that on this podcast, uh, Ben Chatel in Tokyo and Patrick Locke in New York. Ben, Pat, welcome. Uh, so, Pat, uh, let's start with you since you are closer to the Fed action state side. What did you make of Chair Powell's press conference and the risk market perception in the aftermath uh, of the presser that the Fed is close to a dovish pivot? Sure. Thanks, Ari. Uh, yeah, you know, market response fairly clear, not just in FX, but also in curve shape as well. Um, we got a decent, uh, decent sized bull steepening on the day which kind of, I think, gives a cleaner read on on how the market, you know, interpreted Powell. But yeah, I think the reaction FX was pretty sizable for the degree of nuance in the presser. I think slowing growth is pretty well understood at this point. And the slower pace of hikes that he alluded to, you know, in my view, that's a reasonably intuitive outcome. And I would argue was already in the price, at least looking at at what was baked into the December uh, the December Fed date, and also given that cuts were already baked into next year. Uh, so in that regard, you know, this didn't strike me as a major pivot per se, uh, rather more of an acknowledgement that the tightening process is just getting more mature. Uh, end of the day, I think what's most important for us is that the tone around inflation was still pretty clear. And so long as the Fed, I think, is still motivated on that front, I don't think the dollar is going to weaken, you know, all that much. Uh, but on that point, actually, um, you know, Powell did acknowledge that they'll be stepping away from forward guidance, like you alluded to, uh, which kind of reflects a trend that we've been seeing more of recently in G10, most notably with the ECB last week. Uh, so this basically means that the key inputs that go into the Fed's reaction function, namely inflation and the labor market, are going to become even more important and actually just right as about each or maybe starting to turn. Um, again, we still think the Fed will err on the hawkish side of things, but that doesn't mean that the market can't test the Fed's resolve in, in coming weeks and months. Um, so basically what that means is that trading FX, I think, through the remainder of the summer is probably going to get choppier. Um, we get two CPI prints and two payrolls prints ahead of the Fed's next meeting in September. Uh, and the market, I think, will be battling seasonal factors and, and lower liquidity in August, too. Uh, so I think it makes sense to have more of a, of a tactical mindset um, through the remainder of the summer. Uh, last thing I'll say is that you know, we'll also have to watch out for FedSpeak uh, to see if they start to show any signs of discomfort with the state of play and financial conditions. Uh, end of the day, we did just hike 75 basis points. Uh, you don't want the near-term effect of that unwound all too quickly. 
Yeah, no, that that makes complete sense. And and yeah, after today's ECI, there's going to be plenty of data volatility over the next uh, uh, month or so, particularly from the US CPI. So those will be closely watched. But uh, Ben, uh, moving over to you, um, dollar yen. It's obviously had quite the move post Fed, uh, probably in line with US rates, but educators there. Um, before we discuss this week's price action, do you mind briefly reminding uh, listeners what your medium term view on the yen is as a starting point? And maybe also some color on uh, why dollar yen before this week did not trade in line with uh, moves in US rates. Okay, so I think, look, the starting point going into this week was that dollar yen was quite a bit higher than where yield spreads, particularly in, in the 10-year space, suggested that it should be. So we started the week around, what, 136, 137. Um, I think fair value based on the, the yield spread relationship was closer to 130. So I think you can make the case that we've closed some of that, that valuation gap. Um, but in terms of you know, the speed of the move, clearly there's, there's another kind of flow dynamic going on here. And I think you know, it's probably been the case that yen shorts have been squeezed out and that has really propelled the pair um, lower. So I think from here on, look, everything depends on the path of US inflation to Pat's earlier point. How does the Fed um, react to those inflation prints? And on top of that, you know, to what extent does the market continue to price in this idea of a, you know, if not a slowdown in U.S. growth, an outright move into recession? So, with that in mind, um, you know, I, I'd say we're overweight the yen against um, high beta currencies in the options space, and I think that is probably a cleaner expression of liking the yen at this point as compared to dollar yen, which is maybe a little bit more of a, a volatile pair. Um, depending on you know the um, the outlook for, for rates and, and the U.S. economy at this point, right. So uh, part of uh, this this yen rally, uh, the market trying to uh, you know get its act right in terms of how much of a recession risk does it uh, does it really imply. So Pat, you've done some work on patterns in FX moves around recessions. Um, noise around this is is likely to increase after the second successive negative U.S. GDP print for Tokyo this week. I'm picking up from where Ben left off. Um, you know, walk us through the usual pattern of the U.S. dollar in recessions, and uh, in your estimation, how much recession risk do you see pricing to the dollar currently? Yeah, thanks, Eric. Um, yes, we refreshed our late cycle playbook this week, which looks at FX around recessions through three different lenses. First, through a historical event study. Second, by trying to discern what's in the price at this point. And then finally, trying to assess, you know, what are the most vulnerable currencies at this juncture? And by extension, what hedges offer the most value? Uh, broadly speaking, uh, traditionally, the dollar, Swiss, Sing, and Yen all tend to perform best around recessions. Uh, what those last three have in common, of course, is that they've historically had strong external balances and subsequently large international investment positions. So it's intuitive that they do well in periods of deleveraging. Uh, the dollar doesn't have strong external balances, of course, but the dollar is different and tends to benefit both from flight to quality and also from having uh, the largest share of cross-border funding uh, in the world by a pretty, pretty wide margin. Um, I would add that relative to recent recessionary episodes, though, um, the recent run-up in the dollar is actually at the stronger end, the higher end. Uh, that in and of itself, though, I don't think prevents dollar strength from here. Uh, but rather is, is kind of, you know, potentially limits the scope for additional significant appreciation uh, from, from these levels. 
Um, on that point, we did attempt to tease out what's in the price, uh, primarily using global PMIs. Generally, the conclusion is that, yes, the dollar has rallied hard this year, but that it's not disproportionate to kind of the, the scope or the extent of the slowdown in global growth that we've seen over that same period. Uh, in other words, recessionary risk premium at this point. Uh, we get the same conclusion when we look at the high beta complex against some of the other kind of cyclical measures that we track as well. Uh, so all in, the suggested dollar could have a bit more room to run if, uh, if global growth does continue to weaken. Uh, with that, let's turn back to you, Ari. Um, you know, for dollar bearers, the key argument seems to be that the rally in treasuries recently could combine with some fairly rich dollar valuations that together could start to drive some sustained uh, dollar weakness, even if the U.S. is in fact sliding into a recession. Uh, what is your take on the growth versus rates trade-off for the dollar? Hey, thanks, Pat. Yes, no, absolutely. That's the critical question for the dollar from a medium-term standpoint. And uh, two very simple points to make on this. First, your own observation that uh, the dollar rallies and rallies almost always in, in a U.S. recession. So that does tell you that even though the Fed cuts and cuts aggressively in recessions, that's not enough to overturn the fundamental bullish dollar growth impulse that's coming from, uh, from weaker growth. And uh, you know, related to that, um, the second point is uh, growth downturns, um, growth recessions. These don't tend to be isolated uh, U.S. affairs. We've seen in the past that uh, when the U.S. sneezes, the world catches a cold, and uh, there are synchronous easing across uh, the DM world when uh, the U.S. is in a recession. So, as a result of this, um, you know the sort of uh, downgrades in growth and repricing of U.S. rates that we've seen over the past uh, three, four weeks is unlikely to be an isolated phenomenon if uh, the kind of rise in recession odds that we've been seeing of late intensifies and we do actually enter into one, in which case the U.S. is not exceptional in terms of uh, the decline in rates and differentials don't argue for uh, a weaker dollar in the way that uh, dollar beers seem to argue. So put both of those together, the counter-cyclical um, bid for the dollar that uh, typically emanates in recessions, uh, which Fed cuts seem to only be able to temper but not overturn, and uh, the idea that uh, literally every other DM country is going to be facing the same sort of growth and rate risks that the U.S. is suggests to me that these are not uh, sufficient conditions to overturn the dollar trend that we've seen over the last uh, few quarters. Ari, can I pick up on on that final point you made? I mean, when we're thinking about you know FX markets into the second half of the year, it's it's not just going to be about the Fed and, and U.S. rates, particularly for the dollar. Um, so how are we thinking about you know, other factors um, in terms of determining dollar performance? There's a, there's a kind of a strong global component too, isn't there? Uh, 100%, Ben. And this is a point that we've been making in our publications uh, for a while. That for all the hand-wringing around the Fed and the Fed reaction function and whether uh, the door has been opened to just that little bit of uh, a, a delta dovish shift, the fact is that uh, most of the dollar trend that we've seen this year is rooted in uh, weakness in non-US growth, which is largely invariant to what's happening to the Fed path. Uh, in, in that non-US uh, part of the story, Europe is our highest conviction call as the place to be predominantly short FX in versus the dollar. The news flow this week out of Europe was anything but, but rosy. Um, so we've had business surveys in Europe uh, falling quite sharply into, into recessionary territory. And uh, earlier this week, our European economist uh, formally called for 
a technical recession in Europe in the fourth quarter of this year and the first quarter of next. And part of that was driven by high gas prices. Uh, this week, we saw gas prices once again shot up uh, to north of uh, 200 euros per megawatt hour, which was sort of the highs that we got to around the uh, first uh, Russian invasion in, in Q1. Um, and this is just a, a, a bad mix uh, for Europe from uh, multiple levels, as we've been talking about. It's bad from a uh, terms of trade uh, trade balance perspective. It's bad from a uh, from an inflation perspective. It's bad from a growth perspective, and it just leaves uh, you know Europe sort of the most exposed global region in the world to to this uh, Russian geopolitics. So we are. Um, you know, very, very convicted in the bearish euro call. It's expressed against a basket of currencies, but primarily against dollars and Swiss. And just given the uh, slight uh, cloud around, uh, tactical cloud around the dollar because of uh, what's happened with the Fed this week, uh, euro Swiss at this point is is the highest conviction short within that euro block. And then, um, you know, in addition to Europe, China is a part of this international story as well. So the big hope for the rest of the world in the second half was that China is going to emerge from COVID, rebound very strongly, north of 7% uh, annualized quarterly growth in Q3 and Q4. The uh, the new news uh, this week is that uh, you know there is no big bank stimulus measures coming uh, either on the fiscal side of things or on the housing side of things. Then on this podcast last week, we discussed how housing was a drag on the Chinese recovery. The Politburo meeting this week essentially said uh, local governments are in charge of making sure that the incomplete houses are completed uh, without any step up in policy support, which is something that the uh, market was looking for from the center. So all in all, it looks like uh, upside risks to Chinese growth in the second half seem to be diminishing every week. So you can get uh, a decent-sized uh, absolute recovery in GDP, but ultimately asset prices move off surprises to those uh, uh, GDP expectations, and it doesn't feel like we're going to get much out of China in the second half of the year on that front. So that brings us to the end of our podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2022 JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on July 29th, 2022.